0: turn to the book of 1st Thessalonians as we continue our Christmas series on how Christ transforms our life. Now, it probably wouldn't take you too long to figure the answer to this question, but what do you think is the most frequent question that you are asked? What is the question that you are asked the most or perhaps you ask the most? And like if you're like struggling with this, if you go out let's say you're going to check the mail, you get to the mailbox, you bump into one of your neighbors, what is what do you say? Like maybe, hi, and then what? How are you? Right. And if they don't ask it first, then what? You turn around like, hey, how are you, right? It's like we're asking this question all the time. I tried to keep track yesterday how many times I was asked it. I, I lost count. I was just saying almost everybody, even today, I, I've, people are really inquiring about my health and my well-being. They're always asking me, how are you? I'm like, look at my, I think I'm all right here. You know, like we, we ask this question all the time. There's no official data that this is the most frequently asked question, but I think our experience tells you that we're asked and asking this question like all the time. So, like if you um, you call a customer service line, or better yet, a telemarketer calls you, like just as you <laughs> sit down for dinner, right? And what they, you answer it, and then what? And what do they say? How are you? It's on their script. Now, do you really think that they are? really concerned about your well-being i mean when i ask how are you um like they're not expecting this like oh man i'm glad you asked you know my my dog died and uh, and then you know did i tell you that my spouse left and uh, and then i've i've lost my wallet and you know the well ran dry i want to tell you more about and they're like no no I, I really don't want to hear about that because they really aren't after that depth of information they don't want to hear about these things they they don't want you to say this you know hey I'd like to talk even more, but I'm going to sit down and eat. Can I call you when you're off work? You know, they don't want that level of depth to answer the question, how are you? Really, what's happening is they're common pleasantries. They're being expressed and exchanged. And it's it's just like a, a pattern. But how are you? It's actually a really good question. And to actually get to the real heart of a matter, you have to say this, how are you really doing? Once you throw the really in, all of a sudden they realize, hey, I'm, this person is wanting to know beyond the superficial. It's actually a good question. How are you really doing? Are you at peace? What is the status of your faith right now? What's going on in your faith? You see, what's, a person's faith is actually the most important part Of their being, the most important aspect of what they think about and how they process life is actually concerned with their faith. Now, when you ask like how someone is really doing, you're inquiring perhaps about someone's faith. You need to know something about faith. Faith is unchanging, and at the same time, it's dynamic. So, for instance, when you talk about someone's faith, there's some unchanging realities. They're what we call positional truths, like for instance that if you have a faith in Christ, like you're eternally secure. You can never lose your salvation. Jesus is always with you in life, in death, in eternity. There are things that are true about you, that you are justified by faith, that you're declared right. Even when we sin, we don't lose our salvation because we're united with Christ. But there's something about our faith that is dynamic. Our present experiences of our understanding and our confidence in our faith in Christ fluctuate. For instance, it changes from day to day. The sense of peace or is it well with my soul kind of changes with our circumstances. Faith is like a muscle and it needs to be exercised. It can it can change. It can develop. Your muscle needs to be nourished. It needs to be exercised. It can be injured. It could be made weak. Did you know that your muscle could atrophy? By the way, that's not me. I know that some of you are like, hey, is that? no, it's not. OK, it was a picture that someone found on Photoshop or something like that. So. It's, but your faith is like a muscle. If you want to be strong, you've got to exercise. If you want your muscle to develop, it it needs to be nourished. Well, same is true about your faith. And your faith is so critically important that when you come to First Thessalonians chapter three, that's why we find Paul five different times in verses one through ten in chapter three. He is speaking about your faith, because how you're really doing is concerned about. Your faith. The most important aspect of our well-being is the state of your faith. So just to review, as we're going through the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 1, he talks about how these people genuinely came to Christ, how they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. In chapter 2, he talks about how they were nurtured, how they heard the gospel and how they initially started to grow. But chapter 3 is about them being established in their faith so that they can actually stand. So chapters 4 and 5 talks about how you walk in faith. And before you could ever walk, what does a little child need to first learn how to do? Stand. And so that's what you find here in chapter 3. So why do we focus on one's faith? Well, I want you to take a look at what he writes about. We focus on one's faith because our faith is designed to mature. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy... Our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. You see, your faith faith is like a deposit. It's in your life. It's like a mustard seed. It's not meant just to stay there. It's meant to grow and to flourish. And Paul says, we couldn't handle it any longer. Remember, they had been run out of Thessalonica. Paul went to Corinth and then eventually makes his way to Athens. He says, when I'm in Athens, Athens is about 300 miles away from Thessalonica. I said, I couldn't handle it anymore. You know that I can't actually go back into your city. There was actually Jason made this deposit and said, hey, listen, he we'll be back. And so he says, you know what? I, I'm sending you Timothy. And I am sending my, one of these key guys. Remember, Timothy is a guy that Paul meets on his first missionary journey. It is possible that Paul led Timothy his mother and his grandmother, Christ. But when Paul came back on the second missionary journey, this young man, Timothy, he's about a high school age student, was so strong in his faith. And he was such of encouragement, both to the people in Lystra and Iconium, that Paul said, I want this man to come with me. Though he is young, I'm going to pour into him. This is really the picture of what discipleship looked like. And Timothy became one of these trusted comrades. They had a relationship of joy and friendship and camaraderie and sacrifice and vision. They went through great difficulties together. And so Paul says, you know what? I am so concerned about your faith growing. I'm sending you Timothy. And what kind of person helps a younger believer grow in the Lord? If you want to be a person that actually helps another person develop, if you want to disciple people, what kind of qualities do you need to have? Well, notice the text. Look at verse 2. Timothy is our what? He's our... Brother, you actually have to be a Christian. You can't lead someone to somewhere you've never been. You can't lead someone to maturity if you yourself are immature. And so he says, I'm sending you Timothy. He's a fellow believer. But notice something else. If you want to be critically involved in the spiritual development of other people, whether they're believers in your home, in this church, at the Bible study you're running at work, Uh, In your community, at school, you not only need to be a brother, a fellow believer, but you have to be what? Timothy is described as God's fellow worker. Timothy was not afraid of work. To be involved in people's spiritual development... Like, to be, have an active role, like in Fellowship Bible Church, whether you're working with children or youth or college students or in our, a lot of our fellowship families or women's studies or with our man-to-man group, to be involved is going to require work. The idea is like, well, there's, i got enough things in my life that keep me busy. I, when it comes to my faith, I don't want to invest myself at all. Well, that's actually foreign to the New Testament. To be involved in someone's development. We're, and that's what Jesus has charged us to do, to make disciples of all the nations. You know what we need to do? You actually have to apply yourself. And actually, God will do his work through you, but it will be work nonetheless. I mean, you'll feel tired. You've got to expend yourself. You've got to prepare. You've got to be ready. It'll be challenging. Paul says, you know what? Your faith was meant to develop, and that's why I'm sending Timothy. He is to do what? To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Paul isn't focusing on their health, their wealth their self-esteem, their ease of life. There's actually nothing wrong with any of those things. But the most important aspect of a person's life is their faith. Their faith is not only what they believe, but how they respond to what they believe in their behavior. And what Paul is so vitally concerned about is their faith, that they understand God's revelation and they're responding to his truth. And they're responding in such a way that it reflects A holiness of life because you're connected and united with Jesus. So he says, I'm sending Timothy. He's going to to strengthen you. This word has the idea of supporting an already existing structure, like to put a buttress for a wall. Your faith has started, but it needs to grow. In fact, it's designed to grow. That's why I'm sending Timothy. And he's going to encourage you to stimulate growth in your life and to give you comfort. And just because you have a faith in Christ doesn't mean that you're actually always re- actualizing and uh, utilizing the resources that are available. Isn't it interesting? And I see this in myself. You can kind of slip into autopilot. You're going to like, well, I'm just going to tackle this and you just do it. But God wants you to do it in his strength, trusting in him. And so Paul is sending Timothy, he says, I want you to strengthen and encourage these people. And he's writing this in this letter. You know, talk about a ministry of multiplication that's what we have here this is really discipleship at its finest you see paul isn't just an evangelist like i'm sharing the gospel and i want you to, want you to believe in jesus and then i hope it works out for you and i'm gone he's also a pastor he wants them to flourish and become fully mature when jesus said go make disciples it meant both sharing the gospel seeing people trust in christ but also to see people come into the fullness of maturity so that they will observe all that Jesus has commanded. And so that's why he's sending him. Really, ideally, that's what every Christian is meant to be able to do, to not only share the gospel, but help people mature in their faith, to disciple them. Ideally, we should be able to load each one of you in an airplane and airdrop you somewhere, and you could share the gospel, and you could start helping people grow in Christ. That's what Paul is doing with Timothy. It's pretty interesting. Even though Satan uh, hindered and thwarted the efforts, remember that back in uh, verse 18 of chapter 2? God actually shows his sovereignty and the ministry multiplies. Even though Paul can't go, Timothy is going to go in his place. Our faith is designed to mature. In fact, it's of critical importance that your faith flourishes. And I'd like to ask, is your faith, flourishing. Are you thriving? Are you growing? I I read this really interesting account. Gary Richmond wrote an article called, It's a Jungle Out There. And uh, he writes of his experiences of watching an Angola giraffe giving birth. And let me just read this to you. I found this to be rather fascinating. So he's, he's writing, he's saying, I stood next to the zookeeper, Jack Badal, to watch. And so there's, he's writing about this female giraffe who is about to give birth and she was standing up and the calves front hooves and head were already visible and so gary asked well when is she going to lie down well she won't jack answered i mean gary's like but her hind quarters are nearly 10 feet off the ground isn't anyone going to catch the calf jack responded this way well you can try catching it if you want But its mother has enough strength in her hind legs to kick your head off. Whoa! And soon afterwards, this calf hurled forth, landing on its back. And its mother waited for about a minute, just watching this baby calf giraffe just laying there. And then, apparently, this female giraffe just gave it this huge swift kick and sent it just flying around, hoof overhead, and just... And it's down there. I'm like, whoa! What is going on? You know, the curious just watching this, and, and he's and he's asking, what what happened? And uh, Jack, the zookeeper, said, well, she wants it to get up. You see, whenever the baby ceased struggling to rise, the mother would prod at it with a hearty kick, and finally, eventually, this calf stood up. Okay, so you got this wobbly little giraffe calf standing up for the first time. What do you think happened? This I found this to be very interesting. The mother walked over and gave that little baby giraffe another swift kick and sent it flying back down to the ground. This was more than Gary could handle. It's like, what in the world? What's going on here? And Jack responded, the zookeeper, she wants it to remember how it got up. You see, in the wild, if it didn't quickly follow the herd, predators would pick it off. Very interesting. This mother giraffe wants the baby to thrive and survive the mother giraffe understands that as an infant that giraffe needs to get stable needs to start growing and and yeah i mean you and i we're not going to be kicking people and we we don't do that we discourage that in the church just in case you're like where's he going with this analogy but i want you to understand this god is fully intent that we don't get picked off that we learn how to stand strong And that is why Paul is so very interested in how these brand new believers are doing. He doesn't want them getting picked off by the enemy. He doesn't want them succumbing to all the trials and temptations that they're facing. You see, friends, why we focus on faith is because our faith is designed to grow and to mature. Let me tell you something else we see in this text here. Our faith is also destined to be tested. Why do we focus on faith? Well, you know, our faith is destined to be tested. Look at what he's talking about beginning in verse 3. He says, you know, I'm sending Timothy to you. He's supposed to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. I want you to notice something in verse 3. Notice what he said. We were destined for this. Do you see that? So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. To be in Christ is to go against the grain and the flow of this world. You are no longer under the dominion of Satan. You're now in the kingdom of the beloved son. And there's going to be a war. And there's going to be challenges. Life might actually become more difficult for you to be a Christian. And Paul made it utterly clear when you trust in Jesus, it could actually get more difficult. Recently, I had the privilege of leading a a young man to Christ. And one of the things I told him before he left my office is that it could get rough out there especially with the crowd that he's been running with. They may not like it. It could get tough. And Paul is saying, you know, you need to understand. Jesus said, you know, in this world, we're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, but make no mistake. As much as you and I value comfort and we really don't want to have any problems, you're going to have troubles and you're going to have trials and there will be tribulation. And what Paul is very interested in them is that they would learn to respond correctly to the difficulties that they face. Sometimes, you know, when I, you and I, when we face trouble and it's like things are hard or it's difficult, you're like, oh man, I must be, must be doing it wrong. I mean, I've tried to take a, a lead here and in being involved in this children's ministry, or I'm, I'm actually taking this big step and I'm helping out with the youth now, or, you know, I tried to, trying to leave this Bible study at work, or I've actually tried to share my faith with a fellow classmate and all of a sudden it gets tough and you're like, oh, man, God must not want me doing that. Uh-uh. You should expect it. In fact, when you make spiritual advancements in the lives of other people, it's like you've got a target on your back and it's going to get more difficult. And some of you, and as I'm just kind of looking around in the auditorium, you're like front line. You're in it. I know you face difficulties and hardships. You should expect it. And that's what Paul said. You know, we kept telling you that we're going to suffer affliction. Remember that? Verse four, indeed, when we were with you, what we told you about this, that we kept telling you like over and over in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. It's not like like Paul, like saw what was going to happen. He knew by virtue of following Christ and advancing the gospel in a world hostile to Christ that there's going to be a price to pay. And so he said, I don't want you to get thrown off by this. We're suffering. We're enduring this. And guess what? It's come to pass. Just as you know, you've heard about these things. And so that's why he says, you know, I couldn't endure it any longer, so I wanted to find out about your faith. You know, trials and difficulties, uh, they're hard. I really wish I didn't have them, and I really wish you didn't have them. I would love it always to be well and perfect and your circumstances, always just to seemingly be without any problems whatsoever. But it is not that way. I can tell you that trials can provide multiple blessings in disguise. William MacDonald writes, not our William MacDonald, but another William MacDonald. Our William MacDonald could write this as well, but he wrote this. For instance, trials, they, they prove the reality of our faith, and listen to this, and weed out those who are mere professors, but not true possessors. And a lot of folks that give lip service like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, you know. I'm a Christian. If, if pressed, I'm a Christian. But they really don't know Christ. They don't even know the gospel. They haven't really believed in Jesus, but they're going to say they're a Christian. This is pretty popular in the South. Trials have a way of just kind of weeding it out, whether you truly know Jesus or not. Another thing about trials, they develop certain graces, uh, such as endurance in our character. They enable us to comfort and encourage others who are going through trials. You've been through difficulty in trials? Don't you find yourself much more sympathetic and caring and interested about those who are going through trials? Why? Because you've experienced it firsthand. Um, they make us more zealous for spreading the gospel. When you go through trials and difficulty, God uses that. It's like a refining that takes place, and now you're actually more gospel-centered and gospel-oriented. And something else is that it removes the dross from our lives, like greed and complacency. You go through difficulty, it has a way of streamlining your faith and getting out all the clutter. Paul was so very concerned. He says, You know, you're going through trials. That's why I couldn't endure it any longer. I sent you Timothy. And he says, verse five, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about what your faith, because your faith is the most important part of your life for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. It's not what he's saying, like, oh, you would lose your salvation. No, it's that you would become fruitless. You would cease walking by faith and trusting God in all circumstances. God wants all of you. He wants you to trust him completely. And Satan, though he cannot take away your eternal life, he can never strip you of your salvation. He can make your faith rather ineffective. He can make your personal experience of walking with God rather anemic. And just to remember the devil's most powerful tools, the killer Ds. We referenced them a little while ago, a couple weeks ago. Have you not maybe seen them? For instance, like some of Satan's most powerful tools are like distractions. Anyone or anything that keeps Christ from being at the center of our lives or discouragement. When we lose courage and confidence and enthusiasm for Christ and, you know, like fatigue and fear and frustration and failure, they, they have a way of just making us feel discouraged. And we just we lose sight of God and we lose sight of the fact that God's in this equation and we can trust him. Another one of the tools of Satan is disengagement. What happens is you just start separating from other believers. You stop being involved with the church, and, and you just isolate yourself. Everything the mama giraffe understands, you seem to forget. Another one is just disqualifiers. You just start engaging in some pretty serious sin, like pride, immorality, or greed. And there's another. You just, you just begin to doubt. You doubt that God really will come through. You start doubting the promise of the Bible. In fact, you stop reading the Bible altogether. And that's why Paul five different times in these ten verses focuses on our what? Our faith. And praise God for the gospel. Man, if, if you've engaged in sin, you find yourself alienated. Remember, Jesus Christ crucified, died and was buried and he rose again on the third day. You've got life in Christ. And no matter where you're at right now, even if you sense, man, I got like the coldest heart ever, you just trust in Jesus and he will revive your life. God renews us with his presence, the truth of his word, and his people. That is why it is so critically important to be a part of the body of Christ. You see, it's our faith in Christ that keeps us grounded when the enemy attacks. And I know, I know that Satan is, would love to destroy this church. I mean, look what God is doing. We've got people that are coming to Christ. We've got people from other countries that are visiting that are coming to Christ and are going back to some very hostile environments, but they're doing so on the strength of Jesus. We've got so many people growing in the Lord. Look what's going on in our church. Don't you think that Satan would love to just divide and tear this place apart and shred it? Friends, that's why we focus on our faith, and you need to understand that your faith is going to be tested. Don't be surprised. That's what Paul is writing. Newt Larson uh, recounts a time in his life where he went to the hospital to visit a couple of friends of his who both were dying of cancer. Um, and in fact, he wrote that a week later, after he visited them, they, they actually both passed away on the same day. Uh, what was so interesting about this is that um, they had two very different perspectives in these difficult days. Opposite reactions to the same trial. One was bitter and angry with God. And uh, he died of, like, this forsaken attitude. The other, uh, this one friend that he visited, why, he said, when well, we got there, uh, like, he held my hand, and, and we prayed, and we cried tears of thanksgiving to God for all the benefits in his life. And he thanked God for his grace and what Christ had done for him, and he, and he rejoiced at the thought of meeting God. Two men, same situations. One was abiding in Christ and the sovereign grace, and the other... His faith simply didn't have the deep roots and the roots that come with maturity in Christ. And what happened is it, it kind of just doubled his pain in death. You see, friends, our faith in Christ, it's what transforms our life. And that's why Paul is so critically important, critically concerned that it's growing and flourishing because your faith is going to be tested. Let me tell you one other reason why we focus on faith. We focus on faith because our faith deepens the joy of fellow believers. So as you've been looking at this text, chapter 3, like verse 1 and verse 5, he's like, I could endure it no longer, man. I am beside myself. Don't you find not knowing creates a lot of tension in your life? I mean, it kind of tears you up. I I don't like surprises, and I, I don't like not knowing. I like to know. But there's things in our life where we simply don't know. And haven't you ever had an experience where just not knowing is just like, ah, you're just kind of going crazy? I, um, I was reading this. Lee Eklov wrote a, these following quotes from an imaginary journal of a wife and her husband reflecting on the same day's events. The wife in her journal wrote this. Tonight, my husband was acting weird. Did some of you write that in your journal too? Okay, let's keep going here. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong, and he said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault and that he was upset. I said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and to not worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still remember that he was distracted, and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. In his journal, uh, he only wrote nine words, and you have to admire his conciseness and his ability to get clarity on the situation. And he simply wrote these words. Rough day. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. That's it. That was all the problem. That's what he's focused So You know, she should have listened when he said, hey, it has nothing to do with you. But isn't that funny? When you don't know, it kind of tears you up. And she was all upset for nothing. And really, ladies, you don't want to do that, right? Paul says, you know, I couldn't endure it any longer. I had to find out about your faith. Well, you turn the page and you come to verse 6. Now, Timothy, he's arrived, okay? They didn't have email, Snapchat, texting. You know, you don't get quick responses. You have to wait for Timothy to come back, and he finally gets back, verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Paul hears of the good work that's going on. He speaks of his faith. Timothy tells him, hey, you know what? They got a vibrant faith. They are growing. They are reading. They have personal times with God. They're collecting together and coming together for worship. They are believing. They are growing in understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. They're growing in the word. And they got a growing confidence in Christ in their midst. And they also have this love, a love for Christ, a love for others, a love for the people in their community." Hey, if you're ever going to reach your community, you got to love the people in your community, even those who are far from Christ and they are actually flying the flags. I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Well, you got to love them. And you see in the Thessalonians, Timothy's bringing this report. They got this great love. And notice also what he says. You know, they are they long to see you. They long to see you, and just like we long to see you, it, they're talking about reminiscing the good times they had and the anticipation of good times to come. Just by the way, as you go into the Christmas season, there are going to be some people in your life that are going to want to reminisce about the good times. That's always a great activity to deepen bonds. And he says, verse verse 7, he says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Did you see that? Your faith, Thessalonians, standing strong in the midst of difficulty and persecution, you got a vibrancy, you got a love, That is a great encouragement to me. And he actually says in verse 8, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. It's like Paul is saying, we got like a shot of life. Hearing about you, walking with God, hearing that you, your love for us, it's, it's like infused us with life. And he says, it's like we are standing strong. Friends, that's actually one of the reasons God has given a local church. So that you will be around other believers and that you will be encouraged by each other's faith. You're going to have to talk about each other's faith, but it's one of the beauties of being together. And we're, as a church, we got people that, like, God's just doing amazing things. They got all these awesome ministries. We got folks that are really taking steps of growth. We got brand new Christians in our midst. We have folks that are going through great difficulties, all sorts of trials, but we come together, we're engaged. There is a love, there is a faith, there is a synergism, there's a growth that is taking place. And that's what Paul is saying. We, Paul himself was going through difficult times, feeling alone. But hearing about the Thessalonians' faith, man, it just it just filled him with life. And so he says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your, you see it? Faith. Hey, they were off to a good start. Things were happening. And they'd actually gone through some storms, but they were like a little steepling plant. And they had come up, but they still needed to mature. And he's saying, you know, there's things that are lacking in your faith. Lacking. Likely because of immaturity, not because of rebellion. You see, Paul's really excited that they're standing, but he wants them to watch chapters 4 and 5. There were some pretty big issues that the church was facing, like immorality, chapter 4. It was, it was taking place. He had to really define and describe this. There were some folks that uh, had great concerns about like the coming of the Lord and, and what happens when believers die. And Paul says, you know what? I want to be with you, so why? To complete, to make you fully mature, anything that is lacking in your faith. He wanted them to understand what personal maturity look like, overcoming obstacles, presenting the gospel, how to cultivate discipleship, and how this ministry of Jesus goes forth, how to communicate, how to counsel, how to cast vision, what to do with your finances, all of this, Paul says, I want you to be fully mature in every respect. So friends, why do we focus on faith? Because your faith is of critical importance. In fact, our faith in Christ transforms our lives. And you need to know something. Our faith influences others. Our faith influences others. You see, when you're around people that have a genuine love for Jesus, it's contagious, it's refreshing, it's encouraging. Before I was a Christian, and I'd say it was at least a several-year investigative process, When I was around the real deal, people who were not ashamed of the gospel, who genuinely loved Jesus, I found that to be like, I want that. They have something I don't. We got some, we're like all like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody. I want to fit into this PC society that that the media and whoever else is is trying to impose upon me. Friends, you had a genuine love for Jesus. You let the light shine. You let the salt go out. And friends, it is, people want that. It is like water to a thirsty soul. It is life-giving. It's bread. And you've got it. And so, really what you want to do, friends, you want to make sure that you are focusing on faith. And at Fellowship, this is our vision. Our vision is this, that you are growing deep in Christ, and you are branching out and you're reaching out. And so, this Christmas season, would you make it a point to focus on faith? Faith in Christ. With your kids, when's the last time you've ever addressed the issue of faith with your kids or your grandkids? You're going to have extended family. Perhaps you're going to be around. Some of them are believing. Are you please engage them? You got coworkers. You got folks at school. And I'm asking you to focus on faith because of this. If you don't, who will? Honestly, if you don't focus on faith in Christ, who will? See, what makes a person's ministry significant is not that you're just doing things, not that you're just keeping the program running or anything like that, but that you're focusing on faith, their faith in Christ. And why do we do so? Because our faith in Christ is what transforms our lives. So this Christmas season, why don't you focus on faith? For those who have been great encouragement to you, why don't you tell them? And in our church, can we make it a practice? that we actually are concerned about how people are really doing. Let's pray. Lord, and thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How we see spelled out a heart for loving people and wanting them to grow to maturity, a focus on faith. And Father, for someone here who has come, who has never truly trusted in Jesus, would they just turn from their sin and trust in Christ And Christ alone. And would they just simply pray with me and say, God, I I come before you. I have sensed you drawing me to yourself for some time. And this morning, on this December day, I turn from myself and sin. I trust in Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. And Father, for all of us, would you help us to be those who are going to go a little deeper than just, how are you? Fine. But that we are concerned about each other's faith that we have ministries of intense meaning. Would you accomplish this work for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.